I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. It's been understood for more than 60 years that cancer cells overproduce sugars on their surface. More recently, it's been discovered that these sugars can help cancer cells evade the immune system. Pallian Pharmaceuticals is developing immunotherapies that work by targeting these cell surface sugars and make these cells vulnerable to attack. We spoke to David Feltquait. Chief Medical Officer of Pallian, about the potential to harness glycobiology to treat cancer. How the company is working to modulate cell surface sugars and its emerging pipeline of glycoimmunotherapies. David, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me on the Bio Report. We're going to talk about the role sugars play in the growth and spread of cancer, Pallian Pharmaceuticals, and its efforts to develop immune therapies that work by targeting cell surface sugars that can play a role in hiding tumors from the immune system. We've seen great advances with checkpoint inhibitors. Maybe you can start by explaining how those work. Sure, I'd be glad to. I was very fortunate in my career. I was able to work at BMS and on all of the checkpoint inhibitor programs there. And so we've learned a lot about how these work. In in its simplest sense, all immune checkpoint inhibitors work in a very similar way. When the immune system gets activated, it's very important that there are mechanisms to turn it back down. So nature has provided a number of biologic signaling pathways to do that. And these pathways are basically checkpoints. They're putting a check on the activation status. And so immune checkpoint inhibitors are simply drugs that block those inhibiting pathways. So by having a drug that inhibits an inhibiting mechanism, the net effect is to activate or maintain activity of the immune system. And this is why it's important in oncology. How effective are the existing checkpoint inhibitors and what happens when they don't work as desired? There are a number of checkpoint molecules and many of these have had drugs developed against them. Only a subset of them have actually shown clinical benefit. They are CTLA-4 as a target, the PD-1 and PDL one pathway, pd one's a receptor, PDL one's a ligand, and then LAG-3. The only other one that's shown a little bit of activity is against TIGIT, and it just remains to be determined whether that shows true benefit. So in these... Um, whereas other checkpoint targets have yet to shown benefit. So it's, it's only in a subset. In those targets that have shown benefit, CTLA-4 and targeting PD-1 or PDL one have shown improvements in survival across multiple different tumor types. LAG-3 is new enough that we've seen benefit in terms of progression-free survival, but we haven't had enough follow-up to know about improvements in survival. Now, I mentioned that these have shown benefit across multiple tumor types, and that's, that's excellent. That, that's actually transformed the field. What's unfortunate is, is that 
only a minority of patients within any given tumor type are benefiting from these agents as monotherapies. We've combined these with other therapies and together they have had additive effects and more patients can benefit, but there's still not a majority of patients that, that are benefiting. And so there's plenty of room to, to go to find other therapies that can further activate the immune system. Pallian is focused on glycolimmunology and in particular, siloglycans. It's been known for more than 60 years that cancer cells overproduce siloglycans on their surface. Nevertheless, it's only recent that cancer treatment strategies have turned to these. What's happened to elevate siloglycans and the role they play in cancer? Yeah, this is it's a really interesting question to look back at the history of this. Let me tell you a story about how I've started to think about immune resistance and the importance of other pathways. Um, early on, as we were developing checkpoint inhibitors, we started to notice interesting pattern. Only a minority of patients were benefiting, as we discussed previously. But we started to look for the factors that were associated for more, patients being more likely to benefit. So patients whose tumors have high tumor mutational burden are more likely to benefit they have more because they have more tumor antigens that can be recognized by the immune system. We also know that patients whose tumors have PDL1 expression on the tumor or on infiltrating immune cells are more likely to respond. And in fact, we know tumors that have already have a pre-existing immune infiltrate are more likely to respond. One of the tumor types that has all of these factors is something called MSI high colorectal cancer. These are patients who have inherited defects in, in um, uh, fixing mistakes in DNA. And so they, may, they have a lot of, 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 of tumor mutations that the immune system can recognize. They're full of infiltrated immune cells and a lot of pd one expression. You would expect that the vast majority of patients would respond to, to a checkpoint inhibitor. And it turns out that's not the case. Only about 30% of patients benefit with monotherapy. And maybe another 20% have durable, stable disease, which is another form of benefit. But that means that half the patients are not deriving benefit. Why would that be? What are the other factors that are driving this resistance or lack of responsiveness? And BMS, BMS and at other companies, many people have been looking for this, doing a lot of work on what I call omic biology. They're looking at the genome, RNA, DNA. They're looking at the proteome. They're looking at the metabolome. And there's been a lot of interesting data coming out of that work, a lot of hypotheses, what might be driving resistance. But very little of that has actually translated into solving and, and finding a way to intervene on relevant biology. And in other words, it's not really showing us what, what's in, the important drivers of resistance. And for me, that, that, that's an enigma. That, that's, it's a question of well, what could this be? And as I've thought through it over time, it seemed to me maybe part of the problem is we're, we're missing something. Maybe we're not measuring the right things. And if we're not measuring something, that, that's where it's, we're, we're blind to it. I call that dark matter. And so for years, I had been on the lookout for dark matter. Dark matter is simply something we're not measuring, but in this context, it, the, the, um, this substance would have a biologic effect of regulating the immune system. After many years, I happened to find out about Pallion and learning about siloglycans and their role in immune regulation. And the light bulb went off for me that this is it. 
this is what I've been looking for. It's something that's not typically measured. People don't typically measure the sugars that are on the outside of tumor cells. Yet there's a lot of evidence supporting the role, the very important role that glycans play in immune regulation. And it's very interesting. It plays a role on both sides of the equation. When there's too many glycans, they have an inhibitory effect. And we'll, we'll talk about why in a moment. And that's important in oncology, chronic infections. When there's too little, it's associated with certain autoimmune diseases. And so what this tells us is there is an immunoregulatory axis controlled by siloglycans, and that this could be very important. Now, you asked, why, why now? What have we learned now? What's changed? What's changed is about 10 to 15 years ago, there were new tools created to measure these siloglycans, the sugars on the outside of the tumors. One of our scientific founders, Carolyn Bertozzi, is a chemist, and she developed the tools that are something she calls bioorthogonal chemistry. It allows scientists to manipulate individual carbohydrate structures and do it in living systems so we can see the cell biologic impact of those changes. For the glycobiology field, this is like the invention of the microscope. What was not observable and uh, what could not be understood before, now we're able to understand and see the impact all these different structures can have on cell biologic systems, including the immune system. Carolyn and others about 10 years ago started to ask questions about this. She was familiar with what you described earlier, that for over 60 years, we've known that patients with tumors that are hypersilated have much worse outcomes. And she wanted to know why. So she applied her tools to this, and she was able to demonstrate quite conclusively that these siloglycans are directly interacting with immune cells, and they're inhibiting them. And that if she removed them, the immune cells became active again. And in tumors that didn't have siloglycans, she could add them and stop an ongoing immune response. So she showed it could work in both directions. What she basically uncovered was this is another form of immune evasion. For the conventional checkpoints, we always think about PDL1 expression on tumors as a form of immune evasion. And what we're learning is there are other molecules that have similar effects, and siloglycans are one of them. What are siglets, and what role do they play in cancer's ability to evade the immune system? Siglets are receptors for siloglycans. Siloglycans are an array of different carbohydrate structures, all of which have one thing in common. The very last monosaccharide unit on the carbohydrate chains are sialic acids. That's what a sialic glycan is. And and there are hundreds of them. They can be recognized by receptors that are called siglics, and that stands for sialic acid immunoglobulin-like lectin. In humans, there are 14 of them, and they're expressed on a variety of immune cells. What's interesting is the intracellular domain of many of these siglics contain a signaling motif called an ITIM, capital I-T-I-M, domain. This is an inhibitory domain that sends an inhibitory signal into cells. PD-1 has an identical domain. And so what this is telling us is that siglics are checkpoints 
just like PD-1 and other in that, that family. And the engagement of the ligands, the, the sugars, siloglycans, on these receptors transmits the inhibitory signal. And because these cyclics are found on an array of immune cells, all kinds of immune cells can be inhibited by this, not just T cells. Are cyglets common to all cancers or do they play a role just in a subset of cancers? They're, they're common to all. What's different is some, some tumor types have different kinds of immune cells that are involved in the recognition of these tumors. And these different immune cells can have different cyclics. So as an example, myeloid cells are known to express up to five different cyclics. T cells can express up to three different cyclics. Eosinophils have their own cyclics. And so you can imagine because each cell can express more than one type, there's a fair amount of redundancy in this system. This is important when you think about how you want to manipulate that biology. Now, what's really interesting is what's emerged in the last year or two. It turns out that there are other receptors that can bind sialoglycans that are not part of the siglic family. And I, I expect we will find more of these over the next few years. One of the ones that was found was something called CD28. CD28 is one of the most important co-stimulatory molecules that we have. It is the, well, probably the most important one for activating T cells. It binds its ligand called CD80 that's found on antigen-expressing cells. Without co-stimulation, a T cell that has a receptor can recognize a peptide in the context of MHC, but it cannot get fully activated unless it has co-stimulation. It turns out sialoglycans bind to CD28 adjacent to the binding pocket of CD80. In doing so, it prevents CD80 from binding. So sialoglycans are attenuators of co-stimulation. This is incredibly important when you think about, again, what, what the role, what an array of roles these siloglycans can have on modulating the immune system. Palliant has developed two platform technologies. The first is the Eagle platform. Can you explain what the Eagle platform does and, and how it works? Yes. Eagle stands for Enzyme Antibody Glycoligand Editing. And what we found was that the best approach to this biologic system was to go after the ligand, to go after the, the siloglycans. You would think it would be easier to go after the receptor or a single receptor, just like we do with other checkpoints. And we tried that as a company actually a number of years ago, but it, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is that redundancy I mentioned earlier that any one immune cell expresses more than one of these cyclics, these receptors. And in addition, as I just mentioned, there are other siloglycan binding receptors that are not part of this family. So you would need to block three, four, five different receptors potentially, and that, that's just not going to be feasible. We, we, we decided to go at it a different way. We said, well, what happens if we could go after the ligands? And even though there are hundreds of siloglycans, they all share one thing in common. They all have that terminal sialic acid. That's what defines a siloglycan. So when you think about it, that's the Achilles heel of the system. That if you can remove that sialic acid, enough of these, 
you will minimize their ability to interact with these receptors, no matter what receptor it is. So our ego platform is an FC fusion platform. We take it the FC domain and we attach on sialidase, human sialidase enzymes. Our first generation, we attach two enzymes onto the FC fusion. Second generation molecules have a targeted moiety where we replace one of the human sialidase with a targeting functional molecule. Two examples are HER2. We have a HER2 targeted variety and it functions as an anti-HER2 monoclonal, but it also has that sialidase enzyme. And we also have an anti-PDL1. You have a second platform, Hydra, which you're using to prioritize the indications you're pursuing. Can you explain how Hydra works? Sure. Hydra is a tool to help us better ascertain which tumors are hypersilated. It's a, a suite of immunohistochemistry reagents that allow us to measure the amount of silic glycans on patients' tumors. And what these are are actually the extracellular domain of certain siglecs. Nature provided us with the perfect tool to measure siloglycans. It's, it's siglecs. Because the carbohydrates in the cyclic receptor interactions are of low affinity, we modified this so it's what's called a hexameric structure. It actually has six domains to it, and therefore it increases the avidity of this. And as a result, the signal and the noise for this reagent is outstanding. And so it's a very uh, unique suite of immunohistochemistry reagents. Given that too much or too little of the siloglycans can cause problems, how do you target enzymes to cleave the surface siloglycans so they impact tumor cells without affecting healthy cells? Yeah, so it turns out enzymes have low affinity to their substrate relative to things like monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonals are designed to have very, very high affinity, which helps not only with the, the ability to specifically recognize its target. So for enzymes, it's lower affinity. And what it means is the enzymes tend to only function where there's lots of substrate. And as we've talked about, where is there lots of substrate? Well, all tissues have siloglycans, but they have them at very, very low levels. Tumors are hypersilated, meaning they have super physiologic amounts of siloglycans. And so just be, uh, due to that affinity relationship, the vast majority of the enzymatic activity is restricted to where, uh, the tumor, where there is abundant substrate. Pallian's lead experimental therapy is E602. This is a, a first-in-class therapy. What is E602 and, and how does it work? Yeah, E602 is our first generation from the Eagle platform. It's an FC fusion molecule, and it's attached to two human sialidase enzymes. So we also call it bisialidase. And the way it works is the FC fusion allows it to have a greater half-life. The two enzymes now can go and seek out where there is abundant substrate, abundant sialic acids, and it just goes on. It's like a lawnmower. It just starts clipping these sialic acids off of the tumor. What's interesting is 
we don't need to get 100% removal of sialoglycans. As little as a 10% reduction in the amount of sialoglycans is enough to start to see changes in immune cell activity in in vitro systems. So in, in patients, our goal is to get sufficient amounts of this desilylation to reactivate the immune system. And what indications are you pursuing with this? We're looking at a variety of tumors. We use the Hydra tool to interrogate a large tumor bank, over 2,000 samples across 18 tumor types. And we, we were asking the question, what tumor types tend to be hypersilated and to what extent? And what we found are a couple of things. Number one, the majority of tumors have patients that are hypersilated. About 10 tumor types have over 50% of patients that have tumors that are hypersilated. In some cases, it's as high as 70%. And what's also interesting is that these are some of the most common tumor types, non-small cell lung cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, head and neck, melanoma. Um, uh, the, and these are the, we use that information to select those tumor types for our first in human trial. And in that way, we're enriching for the relevant biology. And what's known about E602 from studies that have been done to date? Uh, not a lot. We, we just started earlier in the year. And so the phase one study, the dose escalation portion is ongoing and we'll continue to learn over time. And we look forward to sometime next year being able to present that data at a meeting. Uh, what's the development path forward? Well, uh, the development plan is to do the first in human study, which is monotherapy safety, so monotherapy dose escalation, as well as generating safety data combining with anti-PD-1. We also had built in a backfill into this study that would allow us to put on extra patients so we can generate more safety and pharmacodynamic data so we can make a good decision on what dose to carry forward into the phase two portion of the study. The phase two portion of the study allows us then to assess efficacy as both a single agent or in combination with anti-PD-1 and select tumor types. We chose tumors or we will choose tumors in the phase two for which people have already progressed on PD-1 or PD-L1 therapy. And in that way, when we evaluate the activity of the combination, if we see activity, we can have more confidence that it's the E602 that's driving the benefit and not the checkpoint inhibitor by itself. Now, this is all in a what I would call a resistant or refractory setting. In addition, we have plans to do a neoadjuvant study with E602. This a neoadjuvant means we would give a treatment to people with localized disease that are going to undergo surgery to treat their disease, to cure them of their disease. But we're going to give them a treatment before their surgery for several weeks. And then when they have the surgery and their tumor is removed, we can look to see if their tumor has been shrunk, reduced, or has gone away. We call that a pathologic response. And we've learned in the last few years that IO therapies can actually work pretty well in this setting. And it's a great opportunity to, in parallel, generate data in IO naive patients. Because sometimes IO therapies may work, they just may not work in a resistance setting. There are implications, as you alluded to earlier, that glycoimmunology 
plays a role in inflammatory diseases. What's the plan for exploring your platform in these conditions? Yeah, it's uh, so as you pointed out, the regulatory access works in both directions. So in the context of autoimmune disease, it's really trying to identify targets and to manipulate a, the biology in a way that we're now allowing this glycoaxis to exert immune inhibition on the system and to turn off the immune system and treat the autoimmune disease. So we're looking at a variety of targets, a variety of ways to do this. And I don't think it'd be a surprise to you to know that we would be looking at biology around cyclics. We'll be looking at biology about adding, using an enzyme to add siloglycans. We're looking at a variety of ways of doing this. You completed a $100 million Series B financing in late 2020. How far will this take you? And what's the plan for raising additional capital? Yeah, um, we have... Um, a fair amount of that funding still available, and we're using that for our core program. You can imagine beyond the core program I described, we have ambition to do other things. And so we are actively working with investors to generate additional funds to do additional work beyond this, these core programs. David Feldquate, Chief Medical Officer of Pallian Pharmaceuticals. David, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.